Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm Mila Atmos. What happens when we lower the barriers to running for office? That's the question we hope to answer with today's guest on Future Hindsight, Ross Morales Roqueto. He's the chief program officer and co-founder of Run for Something, an organization that recruits and supports diverse, progressive young folks who are running for state and local office for the first or second time. He has spent 15 years in electoral politics, working for candidates from school board to president. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Is Run for Something your hands-on engagement to fix our political system? During the 2016 cycle, I got the opportunity to work for a really large super PAC that was doing grassroots organizing all over the country. And honestly, one of the best jobs I've ever had in politics. We clearly didn't win in 2016. And I think like a lot of other people, I felt some personal responsibilities because I work in politics. I felt like I needed to get a little bit closer to the candidate work that like I had gotten my start in. Around the same time, my co-founder Amanda was thinking some of the same things as I was. She worked on the Clinton campaign with my wife. And so we got together, wrote some plans, dreamed up a website, had a bunch of people volunteer time to help things get started. And we launched on Inauguration Day in 2017, thinking that this was going to be a side hustle. We thought 100 candidates would sign up in the first year. In the first month, 1,000 people signed up. Today, we have 30,000 people who've expressed interest in running for office. So we have 17 staff all around the country. This became a lot more than I think we ever anticipated that it would. But at the very beginning, what we realized as people were signing up is that there was a real hunger out there. This was an idea whose time had come. We basically set out to create a way to do right by all of these folks. You are focused on local and state offices. Why is this important? Basically, everything starts with state and local office. Um, you know, like 80% of the laws that get passed in the country, the big issues of the day that people are talking about, criminal justice reform, health care, education, those issues, for the most part, are decided at the state and local level. It was a place that the Democratic Party had been neglecting for decades, and we weren't filling the seats with good candidates the way we needed to. And so we decided to do something about it. So what is a good candidate? <laughs> or in your experience, who are the people who are winning? 208 victories since 2017. That's a lot. Who are these people? I think the things that they have in common are actually really interesting. The first is they're truly representative of their communities, racially and ethnically, but also like in terms of lived and shared experience. The other thing is we are looking for candidates who are like going to get out there and work really hard. Running for office, it doesn't just put strain on the individual. It puts strain on families, on communities sometimes. You know, we'll come in and endorse, we'll help, we'll provide resources, we'll try to make things easier. But at the end of the day, all of this is going to be predicated on how hard the candidate is willing to work. We're also really interested in candidates who are not running to be something, they're running to do something. We find that like those are the folks that tend to step up the most, but also to have the most support and success when they do it, because it's not just about them. It's not about like a stepping stone. It's about issues that matter to people in their community. 
We all know that Donald Trump is president. You don't necessarily need to remind voters of that. They're aware. And what they're really interested in seeing and hearing is what is your positive vision for the community. The example a lot of people are using is a woman named Danica Rome, who's a transgender woman who was elected to the House of Delegates in Virginia back in 2017. She basically ran on the issue of traffic in her district. It was like the only thing she spoke about. She beat the incumbent who proposed the bathroom bill. And she did it because she said she was going to fix traffic. And we saw that all across the country in 2017 and even more so in 2018. These victories have like real impacts for people. If you look in Virginia, they expanded Medicaid for tens of thousands of families. And you're seeing that all over the country right now as new legislators and city council people and school board members are getting sworn into office. That's exciting. It sounds like the effect of electing these types of great candidates who really come from the communities, are truly local, is better governance. Would you agree with that? Yeah, and I think the folks who don't win, who are running in like deep red areas that haven't seen a Democrat run in 10, 15, 20 years, are just as important because... The only time that a lot of those folks get to see a Democrat is when they're being turned into a caricature on Fox News. When it's their neighbor or somebody in their community that's running, it really changes the conversation. It doesn't mean that they're going to win in this cycle or the next cycle, you know, or the following one. But what it means is that we have the opportunity to show folks what it means to have democratic or progressive values live in red areas, the only way to fight back against sort of the caricature that Democrats get painted as in large parts of the South is to actually show people that live the same types of lives that they live, but have different views. So you have recruited over 30,000 people under 40 who want to run for local office. Why are they running for office? Why now? There's been a lot of talk about how the 2016 election awakened a lot of people. When we look at the folks who are running, when we do research and talk to folks, the things that we consistently hear are that people are running because they have issues that they want to solve in their communities. And what the 2016 election did was catalyze some of that energy and make them feel like they could direct that energy into actually making an impact in their communities themselves. I think one of the things about the Donald Trump election is that it showed us that if he can be elected president, then any of us can run for office and potentially be elected as well. We don't have to be afraid to try this out. But you said that you were surprised about that. Is there anything else that you were surprised by since you have founded Run for Something? At the very beginning, like everyone wanted to run for Congress, Senate, or president. When we started talking to people and having conversations, a lot of folks began to realize that the issues that they were really trying to solve were actually much more local and that they were things that they themselves could address. Another thing that has always really surprised me is we knew that money and volunteers were going to be like really important and significant. And as we surveyed our candidates in 2017, we had a lot of folks say something to the effect of literally by just starting this organization and knowing that y'all were here and had my back, that gave me the motivation I needed 
to run for office. When we asked them, what were the types of resources that you found the most valuable? Huge numbers were basically like friendships with other candidates who are also currently running or had run before. Running for office is one of the loneliest things you can do because if you have campaign staff, which many of our candidates don't, they don't want to hear you complaining because they're working just as hard as you. And your family doesn't want to hear you complain. And you can't complain to your constituents because you're trying to convince them to vote for you. And so one of the things that we have realized and that we've worked really hard to do is create a space where candidates can tell us the things that they don't feel like they can talk about with other people because we're not going to pull our support back from them because they're struggling with something. Really interesting. You don't think about the fact that they need essentially human support, right? Need friendship and community to sustain them. What is a common misconception about running for office that you've encountered in the last 15 years and you'd like to dispel? I think people see what happens on MSNBC or Fox News and they feel like that's how politics is everywhere all the time. Running for office is a form of public service. And essentially, you are given sort of the honor and responsibility, if elected, to represent whatever constituency you ran to represent. They sort of become your family in a lot of ways. The other thing that I try to dispel is that money is just not going to fall from the sky. Um, to be fair, there's no context for people to really understand how all of this works. There isn't a rich person that's going to suddenly decide to give lots of money to your campaign. And honestly, most states have campaign finance laws. What actually happens around fundraising is you make a list of all of the people you've ever basically come into contact with in your entire life. Friends, family, acquaintances. You put them in a spreadsheet, you write a script, and you literally start calling those people and asking them to invest in your campaign and asking them to invest in the things that you're going to do when you get elected. And it's really hard, especially when it's for you specifically. The thing that we tell a lot of candidates and that we talk to is you have to ask everyone. The first people who are contributing to your campaign are your friends and family. And that's also why it's harder for young people, women, people of color, folks who don't have those networks already built in. If you're a random upper middle class white guy who grew up around a lot of lawyers, the network of people you have to call through is different than the teacher who went to community college to start and did a five-year program to get their master's in teaching. And it's one of the reasons why the types of people we want, that we always talk about wanting to run for office, it's why they start at such a disadvantage. How does run for something lower that barrier? What do you do for the candidates that you work with? We endorse folks. We try to do that early as a signal to other organizations to say, hey, we've done vetting and due diligence on this person and they're really great and you should also think about endorsing them. Endorsements can bring in money or volunteers. We also give candidates access and connections to organizations that do trainings or provide like other types of resources for candidates. The biggest thing that we are doing for a lot of our candidates is giving them one-on-one -on -one support. We also have experienced mentors we have about 500 political operatives who have said they're interested in working one-on-one -on -one with our candidates. So 
if a candidate needs help placing Facebook ads because they don't know how to, we can help them do that. We also write guides. We wrote one for all 50 states on how to file to get on the ballot. We're not interested in reinventing the wheel. What we're really interested in doing is connecting people to the resources that already exist. And then when there is a need to build a new resource, we'll do that. What do you hope to achieve big picture wise with Run for Something? There's sort of like two really huge goals. The first is to essentially build and change what the bench of Democrats looks like going forward, making sure that bench is actually representative of the communities and experiences of America. The second piece is we also know that our candidates are out there doing the really hard work. One of the things that we know is that a one-on-one conversation with a voter is the most effective way to get someone to like turn out to vote. And the idea for us is the more one-on-one conversations that are happening every single day, the more people are going to turn out to vote. The big vision, there's over half a million elected offices around the country. I think in our ideal world, we would be able to run somebody in every single one of those districts every time there was something up. You're suggesting that the down-ballot participation will drive the up-ballot turnout. And we saw that a little bit in 2017 in the Virginia House of Delegates race elections. If you compare the districts that Run for Something candidates ran in to similar types of districts, Run for Something candidates outperformed their counterparts by over a percentage point, which may not sound like a lot, But if you think about a percentage point in terms of the fact that Hillary Clinton lost Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin by less than a percentage point each, a percentage point in elections means a lot. Thanks for putting that in context. (laughs) (laughs) It really matters. I think sometimes we lose sight, right? I think one of the things that you're doing and correct me if I'm wrong, is you're making local races exciting. Who are the candidates that are running and how do the Run for Something candidates differentiate themselves in in this picture? One of the things that sort of, I think, animates a lot of our work is the idea that you can't be what you can't see. Making sure folks in the types of communities we want to run get to see examples of people that look like them doing that work. And that looks like a woman named Lena Hidalgo who ran for county judge in Harris County, the county that encompasses Houston. It's the third largest county in America. The county judge is basically the county executive equivalent. So the best way to think about it is the mayor of the county. She's a 27-year-old woman of color. She's an immigrant from Columbia. And she just won that seat in 2018, beating a 10-year incumbent. When people were looking at that race at the very beginning and she put her name in to run, nobody thought she had a chance or was going to win. And she worked really hard. She ran a really good disciplined campaign and she came out on top by honestly not that many votes. People like Erin Zwiener, she had a primary opponent that the Texas prognosticators said was probably going to win. She won her primary. She gave birth in the middle of her race. She kept running. She had a really hard general election opponent. 
she ended up coming out on top and she's actually been bringing her kid with her to session as she started serving. Telling these types of stories, showing people that it's not just white dudes who are lawyers who have a lot of money that can do this type of work is one of the most effective ways for us to try to show folks they can do it too. We're so excited about showing the impact that people are having because while it's really hard, the upside is also really huge. There's just like so few places where you can make such significant changes in such short periods of time that really impact people's lives. And with that in mind and what you've learned in these local and state races, how should we think about the presidential election coming up? Because there's so many candidates. I think something that a lot of the 2020 candidates can learn from what happened in 2017 and 2018 is that what voters really want is what our positive vision for the country looks like. That's what they're not hearing on a daily basis. I think there's going to be, especially in the primary, there's going to be a lot of critiquing and criticizing other candidates. To some degree, that's going to happen no matter what. The piece that's really important to remember is we are choosing somebody to run against Donald Trump, and we need somebody who can put forward a positive vision that Americans can rally behind, and not necessarily whoever gives the best speech at the best moment. I hope what we see in this primary process is folks having a spirited discussion about policy, because I actually think there's a lot of disagreements, even among the candidates. People need to decide what direction they want our party to go in, rather than being focused on the daily parlor game. That's really important. How can everybody get involved with the spirit of elevating local and state races and essentially espousing run for something? You can volunteer for run for something. Uh, you can go to our website, runforsomething.net. What I would encourage, honestly, encourage folks to do who are thinking about running is to sit down and think about why. Everything that a candidate does flows out of the why. What kind of campaign you run, the messaging for the campaign, the types of policies you're talking about, the solutions that you're proposing. A lot of times folks jump from thinking about running right into the mechanics of running, which is great because there's a lot of stuff that you have to do that is in so many ways counterintuitive to actually get yourself on the ballot. Candidates will often be thinking about all this policy stuff. And I sometimes seem like the naysayer. What you actually need to do is make sure that the policies that you're thinking about align with your values and that voters can see the connection. Because what policy does is it validates to them that you are what you seem to be. And all of that is connected to why you're running. It's connected to your story. It's connected to like who you are as a person. You'll hear from a lot of Trump voters that one of the reasons they voted for him was they felt that he was so authentic. And part of that was because of the narrative he created. He's the rich guy who's always been sort of looked down on by the other rich people. Even though he's a billionaire, they could relate to not being included in something. Now, I think personally, the way he did that was kind of dis disgusting, but I think it's actually a really good example to look at when you're thinking about just how the entire package fits together. Thank you for putting it that way and 
giving us this big picture, first of all, and for reminding us that running for office is a public service, which is both an honor and a privilege. What do you foresee in the future that makes you hopeful about our democracy and about running for office? Honestly, our candidates, the thing that gets me up in the morning, you hear the stories of what they're doing, what they go through every day, their commitment. I actually think in terms of hopefulness, I have like one of the best jobs that you can possibly have in politics because every day we get to interact with people who are doing extraordinarily selfless things and working really hard at it and doing their best. Even the folks who decided not to run for office, like folks who went out and volunteered on congressional campaigns, all of the energy that was sort of out there that didn't just dissipate. The opportunity that we have right now is we have folks who are engaged in a way they haven't been before. Donald Trump is like an amazing motivator. When he's no longer the president, we can't let our foot off the gas and we can't get comfortable. It's so important to keep finding ways to keep folks engaged and motivated because the ideology that he brought with him isn't going away. Of the two Run For Something co-founders, Amanda and I, I'm usually like not the hopeful one, but I'm feeling pretty good. We like can get better and do more, but I'm pretty hopeful about the next few years. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. The most exciting thing about this conversation with Ross is that he was a real doer who lowers the barriers to more diverse candidates who really represent our communities and reflect who we actually are. In addition, he is building a bench of solid progressive candidates in state and local offices. This reminds me that I should be supporting more local and state races and pay closer attention to these candidates who are selfless, hardworking, and doing their best to represent our communities. And in fact, strengthen the social contract the way that we think it needs to be strengthened. Most of all, I love the perspective that what voters crave is to hear a positive vision for America. In what way does the death penalty disproportionately affect the poor? On the next episode of Future Hindsight, our guest is Stephen Bright. He's a lecturer at Yale Law School and professor of practice at the Georgia State College of Law. He received the American Bar Association's Thurgood Marshall Award in 1998, and he also served as director, president, and senior counsel of the Southern Center for Human Rights in Atlanta. He's passionate about the creation of a public defender system in Georgia. The death penalty is very much a matter of uh, comparison. It should be based on the most heinous crimes and the most incorrigible offenders. The problem with the death penalty is it's very hard to calibrate murders, like which murders are more gruesome, more horrible. You could say mass murders or serial killers, but that's not the people generally that are on death row. The people that we're sentencing to death tend to be people who are extraordinarily poor, many with profound mental illnesses, many who have very limited intellectual capabilities. Until next time, I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fadak. 
The associate producer is Miriam Tsumbu. Find us online at futurehindsight.com and listen to us through your favorite streaming services. Thank you.